What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, I've got myself a, f- a fresh young face here. Uh, I'm not going to say his name out loud because he probably doesn't want to have anyone know or the state he lives in, but uh, say hi. Hey, guys. Temporary Pete. Glad to be here. Glad to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, you've been in this industry for a while. It's like, yeah. hey guys, I'm feeling good. We got a great show here. A big fan. Of, a big fan of the show. <laughs> big fan. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad I have a little buddy. Uh, we. What did we do today? I helped my dad move some of his furniture. Uh, I was expecting it to be a lot worse. He's got straps, which is totally new for me. When I moved into this dump, I didn't have straps. I just picked them up with my arms and carried them all over the place and gave myself uh, like a hernia disc. He's got straps that you put under the furniture and then you put on your arms and then you're supposed to put your hands against it like you're touching Christ and then you lift and it, it, it it's the leverage thing. It works amazing. It's a game changer. <laughs> so I want to like, I kind of want to just buy those straps and then just start like rearranging furniture in my living room and stuff just because like I love the concept. I did that today, then uh, this temporary Pete came over, and the first thing he said when he came in was, not nice house, or haven't seen you in years, it's nice to see you, he says, you got Chipotle or something around here, <laughs> which I thought was pretty awesome. Uh, he asked me what I was watching, and I was watching a, a thing on YouTube, and he didn't really respond, which I took to be disapproval, uh, and then we went to... Chipotle and openly talked about masturbation in front of a tiny little kid that was standing behind us. <laughs> and the, the mom was trying to talk over us to a degree, but boy, once you got me started on masturbation, I couldn't stop. Uh, and that's it. Any updates from you? No, just going back to the straps thing. Um, <laughs> I bought a fridge on Craigslist, a little mini wine fridge, and it was just a, a, a housewife. And she was like, I don't know how I'm going to help you get this into your car. And she's like, wait, my ex-husband has straps. Oh, seriously? She, she, he left the straps, and we got that thing in the in the. Wait car. a minute. So they were divorced? Yes. Like recently, and one of the first things was, is I'm like, tired of him and his... selling his fridge. <laughs> oh, he said it was this hobby that was going to make things better. He just needed an outlet, and... Next thing you know, it was the wine was more important than me. Yep. And then she's... I benefited. That's hilarious. That's like giving the new boyfriend the ex-husband's old underwear around (laughs) the house or something. Or like, why don't you put on my ex-husband's pajamas or something like that. I got some some, uh, men's uh, pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, I've got some. I got a whole winter drawer full of them. (laughs) Right there next to his winter socks and his pants. (laughs) 
All right, fine. So you got the fridge. How's your new home doing? You don't have to say where you live, don't worry. Or the shape of the home or anything interesting <laughs> and defining about I can't, it. I can't give away too much information, but uh, it is definitely going to be a project ahead of me. So That's true. Yeah. Is there other furniture you... you don't you just have all your furniture at your other place you're going to bring over later? Like, why are you buying a fridge when you're just going to have your other one come over? No, we're going to try to leave all that stuff. It's 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 a bad omen to bring uh, the fridge back into the house, to the new house. Is that why the people that lived here gave me their microwave? I thought that was really weird. That's a little personal, right? Yeah, and there's like a pizza oven in the bottom portion. I'm like, this is like a, a real high-end microwave. Like, they must have banked a lot on this. Like, this is going to really make the kitchen. They're like, oh, you're single. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna throw that in. The first thing I do is walk into the kitchen with my thirty dollar microwave from Target, and I'm just like, "Oh Lord!" Just <laughs> drop it on the floor, yeah. like, "Look at that!" and go I hug make it. Popcorn and pizza at the same time. <laughs> Finally, because you know I gotta have that popcorn sprinkled yeah. all over that beautiful melted cheese. All right, let's move on to the works. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you. And maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds. The cars outside the window. The creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Yes. Okay. Where did we leave off before? On Chapter 8, The Machine Breakers. One, since uh, Temporary Pete doesn't listen to every episode, I am going to explain to him what happened in Chapter 8. Uh, the dad who keeps having this lazy socialist over because uh, in every chapter this guy uh, Ernest has been floating around his house like eating all their food he's just there when like Avis comes home from work he's just hanging around it's crazy so the dad's got him over because he's having this big party that he called like the profit and loss party where he's having all these like small business owners come over which is just another opportunity to it's like watching a porno it's just the whole thing is just set up for Ernest to give another speech and so he says, ah, it's a profit and loss party. And then Ernest goes, you should call it the machine breakers. Because everyone sucks and everything he says is just like, and I imagine like the dad's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like snap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, that's why that's called the machine breakers, which is just even more annoying. Uh, I wrote the note that says, my God, another Ernest speech. Uh, and also the word combinations is used so much that I thought I was misreading it and mispronouncing it. Because it says, like, your problem is, is you rely on combinations. And he kept saying it over and over, and I'm like, but no, combinations is really the word, and I can't find a, 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 you know, 1900s definition for what does combination mean when it comes to manufacturing. I have no idea. 
Uh, and I've decided that just like how Ernest has been taking the priest uh, through hell, I guess on his off nights when he's not around the dad's house, that he's been like, okay, Stephen, I'm going to hook up with you later and I'm going to go take you to like some slum where people fight for money. I don't know. Uh, and the priest is coming back like all shaken and he's not the same man anymore. Um, I feel like we're having that happen with this story. Was something I said yesterday is that this is the most tedious thing I've ever read in my entire life. And I'm imagining, I'm praying, because this is like 20 chapters long, that this thing is like suddenly going to pick up and it's going to be just awesome. And it's going to be like, you had to get through the really boring stuff first before it got super sweet. So that's chapter eight, the machine breakers. Let's dive into that story. Chapter nine. I'm doing that exceptionally loud for Pete's benefit. The mathematics of a dream. In the midst of the consternation, his revelation had produced, Ernest began again to speak. Oh, Lord, we're still in the same room. He's still talking. You have said, a dozen of you tonight, that socialism is impossible. You have asserted the impossible. Now let me demonstrate the inevitable. Not only is it inevitable that you small capitalists will pass away, but it is an inevitable... I just totally messed that up. That the large capitalists and the trusts also shall pass away. Remember, the tide of evolution never flows backward. It flows on and on. And it flows from competition to combination. There's the combination I was telling you about. You try to tell me what this means. Look it up. <laughs> I looked it up. It's the word. Okay, go ahead. You can give it a shot. Uh, to colossal combination, and it flows on to socialism, which is the most colossal combination of all. You tell me that, I dream. Very good. I give you the mathematics of my dream, and here, in advance, I challenge you to show that my mathematics are wrong. I shall develop the inevitability of the breakdown of a capitalist system, and I shall demonstrate mathematically why it must break down. Here goes... And bear with me if at first I seem irrelevant. Let us, first of all, investigate a particular industrial process. And whenever I state something with which you disagree, please interrupt me. Here is a shoe factory. This factory takes leather and makes it into shoes. Here is $100 worth of leather. It goes through the factory and comes out in the form of shoes worth... Let's say $200. What has happened? $100 has been added to the value of the leather. <sighs> How is it added? Let us see. Oh, my God, this is tedious. Capital and labor added this value of $100. Did you look it up? No results. Because <laughs> <laughs> combinationally means, like, more than one thing. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, well, maybe just from uh, listening to me read this, you'll... Hopefully, get a better idea because I have no idea. It's a combination. What? Just <laughs> you scared me. <laughs> like, I'm not surprised. I was thinking if anyone were listening to this, I'm probably screwing up some words embarrassingly, like, and consistently over and over again. And you just made that nightmare come true for one minute. Capital and labor added this value of $100. Capital furnished the factory, the machines, and paid all the expenses. Labor furnished labor. By the joint effort of capital and labor, $100 of value was added. Are you all agreed so far? Heads nodded around the table in affirmation. Labor and capital, having produced this $100, now proceed to divide it. 
statistics of this divination are fractional, so let us, for the sake of convenience, make them roughly approximate. Capital takes $50 as as its share, and labor gets in wages. $50 as its value. We will not enter into the squabbling over division. No matter how much squabbling takes place, in one percentage or another, the division is arranged. You know, with another human here, it's just making this seem even more boring. Because <laughs> it's like, I don't want you to be bored sitting there, but it's happening. And take notice here that what is true of this particular industrial process is true of all industrial processes. Am I right? And the whole table agreed with Ernest, of course. Now, suppose labor, having received its $50, wanted to buy back shoes. It could only buy back $50 worth. It's clear, isn't it? And now we shift from this particular process to the sum total of all industrial processes in the United States which includes the leather itself, raw material, transportation, selling, everything. We will say for the sake of round figures that the total production of wealth in the United States in one year is $4 billion. Then labor, (laughs) this is so boring, then labor has received in wages during the same period $2 billion. $4 billion has been produced. Now much of this labor can buy back $2 billions. There is no discussion of this, I am sure. For that matter, my percentages are mild. Because of a thousand capitalistic devices, labor cannot buy back even half of the total product. (laughs) But to return, uh, with you here, it's just like, I think when someone's not around, I just zone out and go into my own little world where I think about, like, oh, the first girl I kissed. <laughs> and, like, oh, that time that my dad came to my baseball game and said he was proud of me. But um, yet now I'm just, like, thinking, like, he's over there, and this is talking about billions of dollars in trade and stuff. I'm following along, Glenn. I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> but to return... We will say labor buys back two billions. Then it stands to reason that labor can consume only two billions. There are still two billions to be accounted for, which labor cannot buy back and consume. Labor does not consume its two billions, even Mr. Kowalt spoke up. Oh, someone's speaking. If it did, it would not have any deposits in the savings bank. Labor's deposits in the savings bank are the only sort of reserve fund that is consumed uh, as fast as it accumulates. Look, the gas is coming out and I can't stop reading, so it's just going to come out in the form of words. These deposits are saved for old age and for sickness and accident and for funeral expenses. The savings bank deposit is simply a piece of the loaf put back on the shelf to be eaten the next day. No labor consumes all of the total product that its wages will buy back. Two billions are left to capital. After it has paid its expenses, does it consume the remainder? Does capital consume all of its two billions? Ernest stopped and put the question point blank to a number of the men. They shook their heads. I don't know, one of them frankly said. Of course you do, Ernest went on. Stop and think for a moment. If capital consumed its share, the sum total of capital could not increase. It would remain constant. If you will look at the economic history of the United States, you will see that the sum total of capital has continually increased. Therefore, capital does not consume its share. Do you remember when England owned so much of our railroad bonds? 
As the years went by, we bought back those bonds. What does that mean? That part of capital's unconsumed share brought back the bonds. Uh, what is the meaning of the fact that today the capitalists of the United States own hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of Mexican bonds, Russian bonds, and Italian bonds, Grecian bonds, question mark? The meaning is that those hundreds and hundreds of millions were part of a capital share which capital did not consume. Furthermore, from the very beginning of the capitalist system, capitalism never consumed all of its share, and now we come to the point. Four billion dollars of wealth is produced in one year in the United States. Labor buys back and consumes two billions. Capital does not consume the remaining two billions. There is a large balance left over, unconsumed. What is done with this balance? What can be done with it? Labor cannot consume any of it, for labor has already spent all its wages. Capital will not consume this balance, because already, according to its nature, it has consumed all it can, and still remains the balance. What can be done with it? What is done with it? It is sold abroad, Mr. Cobalt volunteered. The very thing, Ernest agreed. Because of this balance arises our need for a foreign market. This is sold abroad. It is has to be sold abroad. There's no other way of getting rid of it. And that unconsumed surplus sold abroad becomes what we call our favorable balance of trade. Are we all agreed so far? Surely it is a waste of time to elaborate these ABCs of commerce, Mr. Calvin said. Tartly. We all understand them. And it is by these ABCs I have so carefully elaborated that I shall confound you, Ernest retorted. There, uh, that is the beauty of it, and I'm going to confound you with them right now. Here goes. <laughs> with all that, like, over the top, then it just slaps in a, here goes. <laughs> That's my favorite part. Did you put that owl poster in here, or did that come? It came with the place. Yeah? And I'd like... It looks weirdly, like, offended. It's like a semi-cross-eyed, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just not quite right. I know, there's something out about it. I think, as we were talking about earlier, there's that tiny picture of uh, some woman from the Victoria a Victorian age, and you were asking why it's there, and I'm like, because somebody died in this house, and I don't know if that's her. I don't know if she painted this. <laughs> Clearly. And we're insulting her. Yeah, I know, exactly. Uh, Here goes. <laughs> Here goes. The United States is a capitalist country that has developed its resources. According to its capitalist system of industry, it has an unconsumed surplus that must be got rid of, and that must be got rid of abroad. What is true of the United States is true of every other capitalist country with developed resources. Every one of such countries has an unconsumed surplus. Don't forget that they have already traded with one another, and that these surpluses yet remain. Labor in all these countries has spent its wages and cannot buy any of the surpluses. Capital in all these countries has already consumed all it is able, according to its nature, and still remain the surpluses. They cannot dispose of these surpluses to one another. How are they going to get rid of them? Sell them to the countries with undeveloped resources, Mr. Kowalt suggested. The very thing you see, my argument, is so clear and simple that in your own minds you carry it on for me. And now for the next step. Suppose 
The United States deposes of its surplus to a country with undeveloped resources like, say, Brazil. Remember, this surplus is over and above trade. Which articles of trade have been consumed? What then does the United States get in return from Brazil? Gold, said Mr. Cobalt. But there is only so much gold and not much of it in the world, Ernest objected. Gold in the form of securities and bonds and so forth, Mr. Cobalt amended. Now you've struck it, Ernest said, from Brazil to the United States, in return for her surplus, gets bonds and securities. What does that mean? It means that the United States is coming to its own railroads in Brazil, factories, mines, and lands in Brazil. And what is the meaning of that in turn? Mr. Cobalt pondered and shook his head. I'll tell you, Ernest continued. It means that the resources of Brazil are being developed. And now, the next point. When Brazil, under the capitalist system, has developed her resources, she will herself have an unconsumed surplus. Can she rid of the surplus to the United States? No, because the United States has herself a surplus. Can the United States do what she previously did to get rid of her surplus to Brazil? No, for Brazil now has a surplus too. What happens? The United States and Brazil must both seek out other countries with underdeveloped resources in order to unload the surplus on them. But by the very processes of unloading the surpluses, the resources of those countries are in turn developed. Soon, they have surpluses and are seeking other countries on which to unload. Now, gentlemen, follow me. The planet is only so large. There are only so many countries in the world. What will happen when every country in the world, down to the smallest and last, with a surplus in his hands, stands confronting every other country with a surplus in their hands? He paused and regarded his listeners. The bepuzzlement in their faces was delicious. Also, there was awe in their faces. Out of abstractions, Ernest had conjured a vision and made them see it. They were seeing it then as they sat there, and they were frightened by it. Did you just pull out a puzzlement? <laughs> I was gonna say I was just about to hit pause, like ugh, I need a break. But then you just come in with a yeah, it's puzzlement, b e puzzlement. Great. You want to look that up, no. engineer Pete? No, fine. I, I will. <laughs> Great. Then I'll keep reading. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Cavill shook his head. He was obviously questioning back through Ernest's reasoning in search of an error. Let me briefly go over the ground with you, Ernest said. We began with a particular industrial process. Yeah, the shoe factory. We found that the division of the joint product that took place there was similar to the division that took place in the sum total of all industrial processes. We found that the labor could buy back with its wages only so much of the product. And that capital did not consume all of the remainder of the product. We found that when labor had consumed to the full extent of its wages, well, I'm really hoping you're busting in with a puzzlement soon because I just Wait, need a break from this thing. Is it really puzzlement? B E. B puzzlement? Yeah, B puzzle. You thought I said puzzlement? <laughs> no results for puzzlement. Yeah, that word doesn't exist. B puzzlement. Oh, you thought I slipped up, and I've bested you. Go on, B puzzlement. Words near. All right. You got one? It's Urban Dictionary. <laughs> I should start doing Look all at... of my word finds. From bepuzzle plus mint, now I'm bepuzzlement. 
unaccountable perplexity. It's actually, oh, it's Wiktionary. Oh God, you scared me. Oh yeah, I was I, kidding about that. Oh, you, I was like, wow, they actually are like pretty <laughs> perplexity. Perplexity. Yeah. All right. I'm perplexed. <laughs> I know, I wonder if I'm going to come out with a vocabulary that, like, is I'm never going to fit in the real world. Yeah. Like, if I'm trying to pay for gas, and it's like, you're, like, 50 cents short. I'm like, I'm full of a puzzlement. <laughs> you're alienating yourself. Exactly, by talking like a socialist from 1905. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get a full of its wage of the capital consumer, whether they want it on a surplus, we agree that surplus be disposable. Uh, we agreed also that the effect of unloading this surplus on another country would be to develop the resources of that country, and that in short time that country would have an unconsumed surplus. We extended this process to all the countries on the planet until every country was producing every year and every day an unconsumed surplus, which it could dispose of to no other country. Now I ask you again, what are we going to do with those surpluses? Still no one answered. Mr. Calvin... Ernest queried. It says right here, It beats me, Mr. Cowling confessed. <laughs> I never dreamed of such a thing, Mr. Asmussen said, and yet it does seem clear as print. It was the first time I had ever heard Karl Marx's doctrine of surplus value elaborated, and Ernest had done it so simply that I, too, sat puzzled and dumbfounded. I'll tell you a way to get rid of the surplus, Ernest said. Throw it into the sea. Throw every year hundreds of millions of dollars worth of shoes and wheat and clothing and all the commodities of commerce into the sea. Won't that fix it? It will certainly fix it, Mr. Calvin answered, but it is absurd for you to talk that way. Ernest was upon him like a flash. It is a bit more absurd than what you advocate, you machine breaker, returning to the antediluvian ways of your forefathers. What do you propose in order to get rid of the surplus? Would you escape the problem of the surplus by not producing any surplus? And how do you propose to avoid producing a surplus? By returning to a primitive method of production, so confused and disorderly and irrational, so wasteful and costly, that it will be impossible to produce a surplus. Mr. Calvin swallowed. The point had been driven home. He swallowed again and, and cleared his throat. You're right, he said. I stand convicted. It is absurd. But we gotta do something. It is a case of life and death for us in the middle class. We refuse to perish. We elect to be absurd and to return to the truly crude and wasteful methods of our forefathers. We will put back industry to its pre-trust stage. We will break the machines. And what are you gonna do about it? Uh, but you can't break the machines, Ernest replied. You cannot make the tide of evolution flow backward. Opposed to you are two great forces, each of which is more powerful than you of the middle class. The large capitalists, the trusts, in short, will not let you turn back. They don't want the machines destroyed, and greater than the trusts and more powerful is labor. They will not let you destroy the machines. The ownership of the world, along with the machines, lies between the trusts and labor. That is the battle alignment. Neither side wants the destruction of machines, but each side wants to possess the machines. In this battle, the middle class has no place. The middle class is a pygmy between two giants. Don't you see, you poor perishing middle class, you are caught between the upper and nether millstones? Is that like a 
Private's reference? Nethers? Oh, wow. wow. Between the upper nether... Oh, and even now, <laughs> the grinding has begun. <laughs> I have demonstrated to you mathematically the inevitable breakdown. I got to start using that more often. Yeah. Look, I've told this to you mathematically. So <laughs> Next job interview I'm going to use. <laughs> Let me break this down mathematically. And I will prepare to break this down <laughs> And after you get done with your big statement, you're like, mathematical. <laughs> it adds up. <laughs> it adds up. That's the best ending to whatever you say with that. The inevitable breakdown of the capitalist system. When every country stands with an unconsumed and unsaluable surplus on its hands, the capitalist system will break down under the terrific structure of profits that it is itself reared. And in that day, there won't be any destruction of the machines. The struggle, then, will be for the ownership of the machines. If labor wins, you will be easy. The United States and the whole world, for that matter, will enter upon a new and tremendous era Instead of being crushed by the machines, life will be made fairer and happier and nobler by them. You of the destroyed middle class, along with labor, there will be nothing but labor then. So you and all the rest of labor will participate in the equitable distribution of the products of the wonderful machines, and we, all of us, will make a new and more wonderful machine. And there won't be any unconsumed surplus, because there won't be any profits, but suppose the trusts win in this battle over the ownership of the machines in the world, uh, Mr. Kowald asked. Ooh, this one is highlighted. It doesn't say by how many people, though. See? It's actually real. And in my last uh, episode of the first season, I actually started highlighting completely random things. So the next person that reads this will see there's one highlighter, and it was like, the milkmen were destroyed was the line that I highlighted. So this one's highlighted by I don't know how many people. Then, Ernest answered, you and labor and all of us will be crushed under the iron heel of despotism, as relentless and terrible as any despotism that has blackened the pages of the history of man. That was kind of nice. I kind of like that a little bit. I think I have that quote in my uh, Pinterest board. In, like, a really cool font with, like, a flower next to it and stuff. (laughs) Taking the picture. That's one thing. Crushes capitalism. (laughs) I'm just imagining that because I tried doing, posting stuff on Instagram, which is about this. I'm like, what do other podcasters do? And all they do is take a picture of the book they're reading, like, in nice environments. Kind of like, sort of like when you see people that take a picture of, like, their Mac laptop with like the keyboard perfectly placed and whatever and then like all the stuff it's all like nice on wood table that's what they do with books and uh, I would love to do that with that quote on a piece of beautiful parchment like put on a table with like a cup of coffee and, and like a flower <laughs> and calligraphy and stuff that would be amazing let's put up a picture of uh, something tonight you want to try and do that yeah. can you hang calligraphy anything no <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't have a printer, so that's going to be a tough one for us. Um, not to mention, I've been trying to take pictures of this book around my house, but it's been so cloudy out, there's no sunlight, so it's just like my book on the stairs with a cat next to it, and then I put a filter on it to make it look like some sun's going. <laughs> it's so awkward. So we'll just have even more awkward. The Kindle, or do you actually have the book? No, I have the book. Oh, okay. But I just refuse to hold the book in my hands where people have to hear me turning the page. Mm-hmm. Look, man, I, 
And also, how, how am I going to see who's highlighting what? That's true. I mean, we would have never made a big deal out of this line if I didn't know. I just would have breezed right through it. We would have had to rent it from the library. <laughs> I am going to highlight there was a long pause uh, to back that up. Okay, I guess it's highlighted. Nope. Ah, well, whatever. There was a long pause, and every man at the table meditated in ways unwanted and profound. But this socialism of yours is a a dream, Mr. Calvin said, and repeated, a a dream. I'll show you something that isn't a dream then, Ernest answered, and that something I shall call the oligarchy. You call it the plutocracy. We both mean the same thing, and large capitalists are trust, but let us see where the power lies today. And in order to do so, let us apportion society into its class divisions. There are three big classes in society. First comes the plutocracy, which is composed of wealthy bankers, railway magistrates, corporation directors, and trust magistrates. Second is the middle class, your class, gentlemen which is composed of farmers and merchants and small manufacturers and professional men. And third and last comes my class, the proletariat, which is composed of the wage workers. You cannot but grant that the ownership of wealth constitutes essential power in the United States today. How is this wealth owned by the three classes? Here are the figures. The plutocracy owns 67 billions of wealth. Of the total number of persons engaged in occupations in the United States, only nine-tenths of one percent are from the plutocracy. Yet, the plutocracy owns 70% of the total wealth. The middle class owns 24 billions. 29% of those in occupations are from the middle class, and they own 25% of the total wealth. Remains the proletariat. It owns four billions. Of all the persons and occupations, 70% come from the proletariat, and the proletariat owns 4% of the total wealth. Where does the power lie, gentlemen? From your own figures. We of the middle class are more powerful than labor, Mr. Asmussen remarked. Calling us weak does not make you stronger in the face of strength of the plutocracy, Ernest retorted, and furthermore, I'm not done with you. There is a greater strength than wealth, and greater because it cannot be taken away. Our strength... The strength of the proletariat is in our muscles. It's in our hands to cast ballots. It's in our fingers to pull triggers. This strength cannot be stripped of. It is the primitive strength. It is the strength that is to life germane. It is the strength that is stronger than wealth and that wealth cannot take away. But your strength is detachable. It can be taken away from you. Even now, the plutocracy is taking it away from you, and in the end, it will take it all away from you. And then you will cease to be the middle class. You will descend to us. You will become proletarians. And the beauty of it is that you will then add to our strength. We will hail you, brothers. We will fight shoulder to shoulder in the cause of humanity. You see, labor has nothing concrete of which to be despoiled. Its share of the wealth of the country consists of clothes and household furniture, with here and there, in very rare cases, an unencumbered home. But you will have the concrete wealth, 24 billions of it, and the plutocracy will take it from you. Of course, there is the large likelihood that the proletariat will take it away first. Don't you see your position, gentlemen? The middle class is a wobbly little lamb between a lion and a tiger. If one doesn't get you, the other will. And if the plutocracy gets you first, 
Why, it's only a matter of time when the proletariat gets the plutocracy. Even your present wealth is not a true measure of your power. The strength of your wealth at this moment is only an empty shell, which is why you are crying out. Your feeble little battle cry returns to the ways of our fathers. You are aware of your impotency. You know that your strength is an empty shell. And I'll show you the emptiness of it. What power have the farmers? Over 50% are thralls by virtue of the fact that they are merely tenants or mortgaged. And all of them are thralls by virtue of the fact that the trusts already own or control, uh, parentheses, which is the same thing, only better, and parentheses, M dash, own and control all the means of marketing uh, crops, such as cold storage, railroads, elevators, and steamship lines. And furthermore, the trusts control the markets. In all this, the farmers are without power. As regard their political and governmental power, I'll take that up later. Oh, good, he's going to come back to a point later. <laughs> Along with the political and governmental power of the whole middle class. Day by day, the trust squeeze out the farmers as they squeezed out Mr. Calvin and the rest of the dairymen. And day by day are the merchants squeezed out in the same way. And do you remember how in six months the tobacco trust squeezed out over 400 cigar stores in New York City alone? Where are the old-time owners of the coal fields? You know, today, without my telling you, that the railroad trust owns or controls the entire athracite. <laughs> Two words in a row. Athracite and bituminous coal fields. I'm not bothering. Doesn't the Standard Oil Trust own a score of the ocean lines? Does it not also control copper? To say nothing of running a smelter trust as a little side enterprise. There are 10,000 cities in the United States tonight lighted by the companies owned or controlled by Standard Oil. And in as many cities, all the electric, electric transportation, urban, suburban, and interurban. Do you know what interurban? I have no idea what interurban is. I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> is in the hands of Standard Oil. The small capitalists who are in the thousands of enterprises are gone. You know that. It's the same way you are going. The small manufacturer is like a farmer. And small manufacturers and farmers today are reduced, to all intents and purposes, to feudal tenor, tenure. For that matter, the professional men and the artists are, at this present moment, villains in everything but name. While the politicians are henchmen. Why, do you, Mr. Calvin, work all your nights and days to organize the farmers, along with the rest of the middle class, into a new political party? Because the politicians of the old parties have nothing to do with your atavistic ideas. And with your atavistic ideas, you, they will have nothing to do. Because they are what I said they are. Henchmen. Retainers of the plutocracy. What are you cracking up about? Just how long this is going? <laughs> <laughs> and also villains. I spoke of the professional men and the artists as villains. Also, it's being spelled V-I-L-L-E-I-N-S. So it's villains or something, which is even more insulting. What else are they? One and all the professors, the preachers, and the editors hold their jobs by serving the plutocracy. And their service consists of propagating only such ideas that are either harmless or... Commendary of the plutocracy. 
commendatory, commendatory. Okay, I think I'm getting tired. Wherever they propagate ideas that menace the plutocracy, they lose their jobs. In which case, if they have not provided for the rainy day, they descend into proletariat and either perish or become working class agitators. And don't forget that it is the press, the pulpit, and the university that mold public opinion, set the thought pace of the nation. As for the artists, they merely pander into the little less than ignoble tastes of the plutocracy. But after all, wealth in itself is not the real power. It is the means to power, and power is governmental. Who controls the government today? The proletariat, with its 20 millions engaged in occupations. Even you laugh at the idea. Does the middle class, with its 8 million occupied members, no more than the proletariat? Who then controls the government? The plutocracy, with its paltry quarter of a million of occupied members. But this quarter of a million does not control the government. Though it renders yeoman service. It is the brain of the plutocracy that controls the government. And this brain consists of seven small and powerful groups of men. And do not forget that these groups are working today practically in unison. <sighs> Let me point out the power of but one of them. Uh, the Railroad Group. It employs 40,000 lawyers to defeat the people in the courts. It issues countless of thousands of free passes to judges, bankers, editors, ministers, and, and university men. <laughs> Members of the state legislatures and of Congress. It maintains luxurious lobbies at every state capital and at the national capital and in all the cities and towns of the land it employs an immense army of ooh, petty foggers <laughs> and small politicians whose business is to attend primaries, back conventions, get on juries, bribe judges, and in every way to work for its interests. Gentlemen, I have merely sketched the power of one of the seven groups that constitute the brain of the plutocracy, your 24 billions of wealth does not give you 25 cents worth of governmental power. It is an empty shell, and soon even the empty shell will be taken away from you. The plutocracy has all the power in its hands today. It today makes the laws, for it owns the Senate, Congress, and the courts, and the state legislature. And not only that, behind law must be the force to execute the law. Today the plutocracy makes the law, and to enforce the law, it has at its beck and call the police, the army, the navy, and lastly the militia, which is you and me, and of all of us. Oh man, my fast reading is paying off. We're, up. We're getting there. Little discussion took place after this, and the dinner soon broke up. All were quiet and subdued, and leave-taking was done with low voices. It seemed almost that they were scared by the vision of the times they had seen. The situation is indeed serious, Mr. Calvin said to Ernest. I have a little quarrel with the way you've depreciated, depicted it, only I disagree with you about the doom of the middle class. We shall survive, and we shall overthrow the trusts. And a return to the ways of your fathers, Ernest finished for him. Even so, Mr. Calvin answered gravely, I know it's sort of a machine-breaking and that it's absurd, but then life seems absurd today. What are the machina ma machinations mm, of the plutocracy? And at any rate, our sort of machine-breaking is at least practical impossible. 
which your dream is not. Your socialistic dream is dot dot dot. Well, a dream. We cannot follow you. I only wish you fellows knew a little something about evolution and sociology. Always bringing that back up again. Ernest said wistfully as they shook hands. We should be saved so much trouble if you did. So what did we learn here today? Um, I really zoned out through most of that reading, so... I didn't retain anything. You didn't retain anything either? He started talking about surplus, and that if a nation has a surplus, they just give it to other nations? Why would you do that? Do you have any... I don't know why you would do that. And it doesn't seem like he's made any progress at persuading these people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd like to see, like... He's been chipping away at them, <laughs> but it still seems like we're still at the same. Yeah, um, nine chapters in, and it's no different than the first <laughs> chapter. I was actually saying that in the previous one, um, where there's no conflict or any progression going on. Like we've already established that the dad is this loser that keeps inviting cooler younger kids around mm-hmm. and doesn't care that this cooler younger kid is around a lot and also hitting on his daughter. And then, this cooler younger kid is just perfect all the time and destroying, blowing minds off for like a living or whatever. And then this woman, the woman is the narrator of the book, and she, we know nothing about her personality at all. And the, it was this book is supposed to be groundbreaking that it's from the point of view of a woman. Yeah. And uh, there's no conflict. Ernest just keeps being perfect and blowing minds. The dad keeps being the same. The woman keeps being the same. Everyone's all the same. And uh, there's nothing happening. <laughs> uh, like you said, he's not even making progress chipping away at them. Yeah. It just keeps staying the same. But, you know, so goes the fight. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's, uh, this book goes on for God knows how many chapters. And by the end of it, it's just like, so goes the lady. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's exactly the same as when it started. And that's the end. Well, so what did we learn? We learned that you can talk at people for hours and make no progress whatsoever. And not make any friends <laughs> by the judge. <laughs> exactly. We learned that there was a, what, bemute, befuddled? No. Yes, be puzzled. Be puzzled is a term. I'm going to use the gas station. What was the other term? Dang it. Like oh, mathematics. Petty fog. Fog oh, what was that one? I forgot. Dang it, I forgot what that word was. I think it means like uh, someone who's slow or dim-witted, but <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. But but also, uh, did we? I don't think we recorded this com- that part of the conversation, but the idea of like, this is the mathematics, I'm prepared to drop on you. <laughs> <laughs> your line being that once you get done talking for two hours, you're like, it all adds up. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can see, it all adds up. <laughs> That's the mathematics. We learned that someone died uh, above the studio. That's true. Yes, this is. We are right underneath where the person died, mm-hmm. which is why I have the that picture. I'm scared to do anything with. It kind of looks like uh, an emo person. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a picture of someone from My Chemical Romance or something in a locket type. <laughs> That'd be hilarious if, uh, of all the time we've known each other, this is when you now find out that I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm really into my chemical romance, and uh, I collect these kind of frames all the time. (laughs) I go to antique shops, and then I cut out 
their photos from Spin Magazine, and I put them in there. <laughs> Spin Magazine. Or Jared Way fan, or whatever his name is. And then I start pushing really hard. I'm like, do you want me to get, like, you and your wife? I can get the same frame, and I get a picture of <laughs> you. And he's like, no, that's okay. Thanks, Glenn, but we really don't need it. Thanks, Glenn, for the housewarming present. But... <laughs> My own locket picture I've made for you guys, but it's like I crafted it myself out of like old forks that I just like. I took a welding class and I decided to make you guys a frame. Do you like the Black Parade? (laughs) Well, that's what we learned. That's what we learned. Well, thanks, Temporary Pete, for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks for being my sound man. Yeah, anytime. (laughs) Okay, tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be here then. And uh, that's it. Uh, I have nothing else to add. That's, that chapter was the most painful thing. Uh, again, I'm hopeful for the next chapter, and I hope that you come back with me uh, on this delicious journey. As always, obediently yours, Glenn. <laughs>